Hi, my name is Paul Crandall, and I'm the lead pastor here at Sunrise Church. Our vision is to lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, which means our hope is that you would take one step closer to Jesus after watching this service. Whether that step is from interest to curiosity or from one level of commitment to a deeper level of commitment, whatever that is, we want to respect the pace of your spiritual journey and we want to help in making that next step. In fact, personally, I want to help as well. You can email me after the service at paulc.isunrise.com. That's my personal account and I would love to know how I can help you take one step closer to Jesus. I believe after watching the service, you're going to find that our church is a safe place to hear a life-changing message. So please enjoy the content you're about to view and email us so we know how we can help you take your next step closer to Jesus. So excited that you're here. So glad that you're with us. We are journeying through the writings of Luke. We're taking kind of different themes and going through the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, and just kind of taking themes and getting these different perspectives and nuances to each theme. And what we've been doing the last couple of weeks is looking at women in the ministry life of Jesus and the lessons that we learn from their character or from situations that Jesus ministers to them. Now, this one I'm, I'm especially excited about because I kind of had this like aha moment this week in studying. This really like reorienting kind of moment. I, there was something that I hadn't seen before and it was so, so, so fresh and so new. Now, I learn something every time I get to study God's word, but this week was just, it was just kind of over the top for me. And so, let me just ask you, if you, have you ever, have you ever missed the forest because of the trees, right? That's a very Oregon, that's a very Pacific Northwest analogy. Have you ever missed the forest because of the trees? Meaning, have you ever missed the larger point because of the details, right? You kind of get lost in the details and then you realize when you zoom out, okay, now I see what's going on. This is the kind of moment that I had. And, and if you've been a follower of Christ for a while, you've been reading the scriptures for a while, maybe this story you're going to be very familiar with. And you may have a moment like I had, a kind of an aha moment, like, wow, I, I miss the forest because of the trees. And, and if you don't have that moment, and you're like, Paul, I already knew that, that's not new to me, that's fine. Fall asleep, just make sure you wake up before the offering, okay, because I need you at that point. Just kidding, just kidding. But here's what we're going to see. We're going to see when we zoom in, we look at the details, the trees, if you will, when we look at the trees, we're going to see these very admirable actions from a poor widow. And, and, and she, she should be admired. And I think Jesus commends her for the action that she does. Very honorable. She, we could say that she was a, a spiritual hero. But then we're going to zoom out. And when we zoom out and we look at what's happening before her actions and after, what we actually see is she's not just a hero, and she is a hero. She's actually a victim. She's a victim of spiritual oppression. She's a victim of religious oppression. That there are spiritual authorities, religious authorities in her life that are abusing her. 
And that is actually Jesus' larger point. He's going to see the actions of this woman and he's going to be pleased with them. And I think he's going to commend them. And I think the language he uses is saying, man, what a wonderful act this woman is doing. But what we realize is the reason she's doing this act, that she feels compelled to do it, is actually because of the false teaching of the religious authorities in her life. And Jesus is not okay with those. Jesus is not okay with spiritual abuse. Jesus is not okay with religious oppression. And that's kind of the larger picture. So if you're going to write down one thing, I want you to write this down. This is the big idea for this morning. God opposes religious oppressors. God opposes religious oppressors. And I almost feel like we can add another statement in there. We could say God opposes most religious oppressors. Most meaning like this is the thing he's set against the most. And I think the reason why he takes such an attitude of opposition to religious oppression is because that type of sin soils his reputation. So not only is it a sin and an infraction to be abusive or oppressive to a person, but if you put on the cap of spirituality, if you put on the cap of religiosity, if you take a spiritual authority position and you commit that abuse, I think it's a double offense. Because you're not only sinning, But you're also soiling his reputation and God will not let his name be defamed by his people. And so this is not going to be an easy message to walk through. It's not, okay? I warn you, you may have heard from the first service, they're like, don't go in there. (laughs) Stay home. Today's the day. Stay home. (laughs) It's It's going to be difficult. We're going to wade through it. But there is going to be hope in this message. But this is the hope. God doesn't just speak out against religious oppressors. He opposes them, meaning this. He will vindicate every victim of oppression. And he will judge every oppressor. Jesus is not the type of person who just points out the problem. He'll point out the problem to us very clearly. But he will say, I'm going to take care of that. So I'm not just going to give like word Uh, words to the situation and appraise it for you as wrong, but I'm also going to do something about it. So if you've ever experienced church hurt, this message is for you. If you've ever felt spiritual or religious abuse in any fashion, this message I think will really speak to you. And on the converse of that, if you have ever been a part of any spiritual abuse, as the abuser, if you've ever been a, a leader and you've made some decisions that hurt people, maybe you were well-intentioned, but you hurt people, this message also, I think, can speak to you as well. So very sobering message. Let's just jump right into it, right? It's kind of like the dentist telling you, okay, open your mouth. You're going to hear a drill. Raise your hand if you're in pain. Okay, so raise your hand when you get in pain, and I'll just keep going. <laughs> But let, let's look first, let's, let's first look at the, the trees, okay, kind of the smaller details. Let's look at the trees. This is Luke chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, and see if this is maybe a familiar story to you. Okay, Luke chapter 21, it says this. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put two small copper coins And he said, he's now speaking to his disciples, they're observing these gifts. And he said, truly I tell you, 
This poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Again, now maybe this is a very familiar story to you. Right, what's happening is Jesus with the disciples is in the temple treasury, which was a part of the court of women in the temple. And there were these kind of trumpet-looking offering boxes, if you will, or receptacles. And what would happen is you would put your money into these kind of trumpet-shaped receptacles. And, and there'd be markings as to where these offerings would go. So it's a very public scene. So it'd be very easy for you to tell who are the big givers and who are the small givers. Maybe you could hear the coins as they rattled uh, into the boxes. Or you could just simply see. It was a public event. How much people are putting in. They didn't swipe their card or tap their card and then put in their numbers. No, you're actually taking out physical sums and the larger the sum you could tell. So Jesus did not need to exercise any supernatural knowledge to know who's giving what. He could tell, ask it everybody else. And then in seeing this, Jesus makes a really radical statement. He says, look at all these rich people giving. Look at the large sums they're bringing up. Oh, they're opening up a large bag and they're kind of pouring things in. Jesus says, but look at this offering over here from this poor widow. Now, a widow in first century Palestine would be the poorest of the poor. There were not many opportunities for advancement. Uh, there weren't many, very many work opportunities in first century Palestine. So this woman was significantly poor. And we see that from her offering. It says she gives two small copper coins. So this would be a, a lepta, which was the smallest amount of money or smallest uh, value of a Jewish coin. You couldn't give any smaller than that. Think of it like, like our penny. The smallest amount that we can think of. Now, a lepta is actually more, especially with inflation. I don't know. It may get there. A lepta may be... But this, so this lady gives two of these small copper coins, the smallest that you can give. So it's very apparent she doesn't have a handful of stuff to give. So she gives it over and Jesus sees it and says, wow, look at that. That's more than any of what's been given. Now here's the crazy thing. When Jesus actually says that, so when you go to verse 4, or actually verse 3, he says, truly I tell you this poor widow has put in more than all of them. That's really interesting because in the Greek, what's being expressed here, Jesus is not just saying, hey, she's given more than this guy and that guy and that woman. No, Jesus isn't saying that. What Jesus is actually saying is more than that. He's saying this one woman has given more than all of them put together. Okay, Jesus. You know, he fasted at times, right? And went without food and... Is Jesus like hallucinating here? Like how can Jesus see less and call it more? I mean, I'd really love for Jesus to be my banker. To look at my account and say, there is very little, Paul. Oh no, but there's more than what anybody has. Ooh, Jesus, thank you. Can Jesus look at my retirement fund and do that kind of same analysis? Actually, Paul, things are looking really good for you. You have more than anybody. How is Jesus making this incredible miscalculation? It's because he has a different calculator. He's operating on a whole different level. Like what he says in verse 4 as he explains to his disciples what's going on. He says, for they all, speaking of the rich, 
contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Jesus calculating in a different way. He's not looking at the amount given. He's looking at the amount kept. See the reverse there? What Jesus is saying, these rich, yes, they gave larger sums, but they kept more for themselves. They were just giving out of an abundance. But this woman gave a small gift, but what did she keep for herself? Nothing. She kept nothing. All she had to live on. Her next meal was not insured because she gave so much. So Jesus says, that's the bigger gift. That's the bigger gift. Because God does not measure what we give. He measures what we keep for ourselves. So is this, is this an admirable thing? Yes. Is Jesus commending this woman? Yes, I believe he is. I think he's looking at it and saying, wow, what a spiritual hero. But when we read this, we need to ask some questions. Because maybe there's something larger happening here. And we don't want to miss the, the forest because of the trees. Why is this woman giving everything is this Jesus expectation upon every follower of Jesus Christ that they would give everything they have like what's appropriate for you is to come into sunrise with your deed to your house and your pink slip and all that stuff and put it all on the offering so you're like no please tell me no it's not Jesus expectation that all of his followers will give away every single thing that they own Now, he does want us to steward all of our resources in alignment with his kingdom. But that doesn't mean he wants us to give it all away. In fact, in the writings of Luke, we could just go to Luke chapter 18. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus is dealing with a rich young ruler. And he tells that man to sell everything he had and give it to the poor. So in that particular case, he's saying, hey, you got to give it all away. Now, why does Jesus make that call in Luke chapter 18? It's because he sees this man worshiping his wealth. He sees this man worshiping luxury, comfort, ease. And so he tells him, the only way you can follow me is you got to get rid of the God of money. Like, I'm not going to be second place to money. That's not going to work. We see in other times in the teaching of Jesus, he says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and me. you got to pick one. And so before this rich young ruler... His options are, it's either me or money. And you are holding on to your money so much, the only way you can kill that idol is to give it all away, man. So Jesus does make that call to somebody who is going to potentially follow him. But in the next chapter, in Luke chapter 18, or sorry, 19, Jesus meets another rich man by the name of Zacchaeus. And he doesn't call Zacchaeus to give everything away. In fact, in the conversation with Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus realizes his sin and says, you know what, I've defrauded people, I've messed up, I need to make those things right, I'm going to sell half my stuff, like half my worth I'm giving away. And then Jesus says, man, today salvation has visited your house. Now hold on a second, that seems unfair. Luke 18, the guy had to give it all away. Luke 19, he gave half away. What's the point that Jesus is making here? The point is, in a particular situation, the call to give everything is appropriate. But that is not the general expectation on every follower of Jesus. And it's especially not the expectation on a poor widow. There is no indication that this woman is in the same spiritual state as the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. That she's worshiping her wealth. That she's worshiping her money. 
And because that's not there, we need to ask ourselves, why on earth would she give away everything? Yes, we should commend her. It's heroic. But is there something else going on? And I think when we zoom out, we look at the context, we look at the forest, what we see is the reason she is giving so much is because she is a victim of false teaching. Let me show you this. Go to Luke chapter 20, verse 45. And I think the reason we don't see this is just because of the unhelpful chapter breaks in our Bible. If you look down at your Bible and you see the big numbers, those are the chapters, and the little ones, those are the verses. Luke didn't write those in. Those came later to help us navigate through the book. And there are times when we break the chapters wrong. Here's a perfect example of that. So I think the reason we don't read in this account we're about to read into the widow's offering is because simply there's another chapter. There's a big number and it stops us. But these things are in sequence. And look at how Jesus talks about the scribes, the religious leaders, and how they treat poor widows. So let's jump up to Luke chapter 20, verse 45. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see this woman. Yes, she's a hero. We should commend her. But she's also a victim, a victim of religious oppression. And Jesus is not for that. All right, look at verse 45. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples. So he's talking to that audience that he was talking to in our first story. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in marketplaces, and the best seats in synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. Who are these guys? Well, the scribes would be the, the premier interpreters of God's Old Testament law. I mean, these were the experts. They were supposed to be the religious elite, and they were kind of the, the academically trained scholars of the day. But Jesus describes them in a totally different way. He shows the disciples, hey, look at these guys. Do you see these guys? They're narcissists, right? That's what Jesus describes. They love these long flowing robes. What does that mean? That was a, that was a, a garment of luxury. Because in the first century world, if you were lower class, even middle class, you would be a laborer. Manual labor would be your profession. Well, it's kind of hard to do manual labor in a long robe, you ever try to do like plumbing work in a dress? I almost raised my hand to that. It's not what I meant to do. I take that back. But have you ever tried to do some really hard work with a lot of clothes? No, it's like impossible. So these guys here, these long robes, this shows you that this is the elite, the upper class. And they love these long robes. And they want people to see them like, ooh, look, Gucci. Right, head to toe. That's what they want. And then they love the veneration of the people. You see me in the marketplace, man, say hello. Right, you're, th- you're throwing a feast, give me the front seat. Or g- g- give me the best seat in the house, that's what I want. These are narcissists. Just their, their ego is like, has this like dense gravity to it and they just kind of pull everything in the direction of giving attention to themselves. Their clothes, their, their, their social interactions. We know from ancient sources that teachers were greeted in the marketplaces. And actually the Talmud actually commands that you greet a scholar or a scribe or a Pharisee or a teacher. Commands that you give them a special greeting in the marketplace. These prideful, arrogant people. Remember in our first account, Jesus said, look at the offerings of the rich. These are the people I think Jesus is talking about. 
these lovers of luxury that are supposed to be spiritual. These are the rich I think Jesus is talking about. And as he describes their narcissism, I think we know what's coming next. A narcissist, if you've been around one, you know narcissists aren't nice. They don't take care of the people within their proximity. Why? Because everything is about them. So you become a victim of their arrogance, a victim of their pride. And look at the victim that Jesus gives. Don't look ahead, right? Just wait for the moment. We're just talking about, we just talked about a poor widow giving an offering. And then Jesus is talking about these scribes and these religious leaders, and he's going to choose a victim of their spiritual oppression. And look at the victim he chooses. It's not a coincidence, right? Look at verse 47. Who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. Isn't that interesting? So that means Jesus was talking to his disciples about these scribes, talking to these disciples about their, their narcissism, their arrogance, their abuse. And then he says, let me cite for you an example of the oppression that these men bring about. They devour the house of widows. And then the next thing he says is, hey, speaking of widows, there's a widow. That's not coincidence. That's totally connected. In fact... This material is not only written or recorded by Luke, it's also recorded by the gospel writer Mark. And they both put these in the same sequence. Jesus' teaching on the, the narcissism and the pride and the abuse of the scribes. And then the next thing they both mention, both Luke and Mark, is the widow's offering. So sometimes when we read the gospels, we see that they're not chronolog- or chronologically put in order. Right? We have three years of ministry life of Jesus Christ. Right? And the Gospels, they're not very big. Right? If you're a teacher, you know the curriculum you have to go through in a year is probably bigger than a Gospel. And that takes you a whole year to get through that. So we're talking three years of Jesus' teaching. So that means they took like episodes. Okay, we got this episode right here on fasting. We got this episode on prayer. We got this episode here. Okay, okay we're going to put them together and we'll thematically put them together. But some of the teachings in the Gospels are one right after the other, and the chronology doesn't break. That's one of those. That's how Luke records it. It's how Mark records it. It's no coincidence. I think what Jesus is doing is saying, here are the scribes. They abuse people. In fact, let me cite for you an example. Here's the principle. Now here's the case study. These guys devour the houses of widows. And now let me show you how they do it. Look at this widow's offering. Now it's kind of ironic because, sadly ironic, because these religious leaders, these experts in the Old Testament law, they should have known better. I mean if you read through the Old Testament, one of the largest prophetic rebukes against Israel, an indictment against their spiritual immaturity, is that they neglect the poor. It's like the number one result of being spiritually unhealthy is to not think about the poor. And that's exactly what these guys are doing. And look at the language that Jesus used. Jesus says they devour their house. He's not even saying they destroy it. They dismantle it. They bring it to nothing. He's saying they devour it, which means they consume it for themselves. I'm not only going to take you down, but I'm going to profit from your loss. 
how terrible is this? Now again, Jesus doesn't just point this out. The big idea is God opposes religious oppressors. He doesn't just point it out and say, hey, that's a problem. Like, we, we, we do that often like in, in, in our times. We, we see a problem, we're like, oh, that's bad, that's terrible. Somebody should say something about it. In fact, I'm going to say something about it. So we create this really cool post on Facebook or Instagram. I'm against this, right? Yeah, fight the power. And we do all this. And that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. That's a good thing at times. But how many times can we actually change the system, right? How many times can we actually vindicate the victims and bring about judgment upon the oppressor? Like, how many times can we actually turn the scales in the favor of what's righteous there's not many times it's hard it's hard to 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 turn that but Jesus Christ is not limited by that he sees it and then he says I'll fix that right look what he says to this to his disciples about this spiritual oppression of these scribes look verse 47 again who devour widows houses and for a pretense make long prayers oh that's You see what he's saying there? He's like, they talk to me in prayer. Or they think they're talking to me. It's all fake. It's all pretense. It's all hypocrisy. It's just a show. That's what it is. I don't hear that. I don't know what that is. They devour the poor. They oppress them. They love money. And they talk to me. They pay me lip service. And look what Jesus says to them. They will receive the greater condemnation wow why the greater condemnation why not just they'll be condemned why greater condemnation i think it's because they're religious abusers they're not just abusers they're religious abusers so one they are more accountable because they know more they're experts in the old testament they know god's law they should know better they could parse it out for you They could rightly divide it, dissect it, and say, here is the ethical thing to do in this situation. But they don't even do it. They don't even take their own advice. They don't take their own teaching. But I think on top of that, they're soiling the reputation of God. And he will not have it. So it's not just you committed this abuse, you did this sin, but you are messing with my people. You're messing with my name. And I will fight for my reputation. Wow. Now notice the rhythm here. Just in case you're not convinced that these two things go together. We read in Luke chapter 20. We see these scribes, these lovers of money. They abuse widows. Poor widows. In fact, that's the only victim of their abuse that Jesus mentions. And then he speaks of their judgment. So we have a warning, the abuse, and then judgment. And then Jesus lifts up his eyes and speaks about the same victim he just warned about. And he says, look at that poor widow. And then what happens after Jesus' teaching there? Look down at your Bible, Luke chapter 21, verses 5 through 9. It's about judgment. The judgment that will fall on the temple. Do you see that? Do you see the rhythm here? These guys are lovers of money. They abuse widows. They will be judged. Hey, look, there's a widow. This whole temple is going to be judged. Jesus is not impressed by this temple. He's not impressed. It's not sacred space anymore. In fact, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus already entered in and called it a den of robbers, thieves. Who are they robbing? They're robbing these widows. There's no reason 
she should feel compelled to give everything she has. How are they devouring the house of widows? They're instructing her to give all of it away to them, to their structure, to their system. And Jesus sees it, this is not a place of worship, it's a place of robbery. These men are thieves, pretentious hypocrites. And I will not allow it. In fact, greater judgment will fall on them. Wow. God poses religious oppressors. And we should take this very seriously. We often talk about in church world and Christian living, we talk about the opposition that Satan has towards the church. We talk about the opposition that the world has against the church, that the culture has against the church. And those things are real. Absolutely. Like Satan is not for the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't applaud that. He doesn't like that. He doesn't want that. The world, the culture that is turned toward sinful rebellion doesn't want to be reminded that they're living in darkness and that they're liable to an all-powerful God. They don't want to hear that, so they oppose it too. But I'm telling you, that opposition is, should not be something you fear. We have promises. We've overcome the world. We have promises that, that Satan cannot prevail against the church. So we should not fear satanic opposition. We should not fear cultural opposition. But we should fear another opposition. The strongest opposition against the church is from Jesus. Now, I know that may sound really weird. Hold on a second. I, I, thought, I thought we're the body. We're his bride. Like, he loves us and he cares for us. Absolutely true. And he will not allow us to be abusers. He will not allow us to be oppressors. He will not allow us to be disobedient. He will protect his witness. And that's the opposition we should be worried about. Because I honestly believe that Jesus shuts more church doors than Satan. Now, let me show you this. Because you may be thinking, ooh, you got to prove that one. I'm glad you asked. Go to Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3. Look at these words. Because honestly, I think it almost feels like we could put these words on the lips of Satan. Some of these verbs that Jesus is going to use, some of these actions that Jesus is going to speak about against his church sound satanic, but they're not satanic. They're from the Savior. But he opposes religious oppression. And he will not let his church soil his reputation. Look what Jesus says. This is the church of Ephesus. This is Revelation chapter 2, verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent. He's saying, stop it. Stop what you're doing. Just like he told the disciples when he saw the scribes. He said, guys, don't be those guys. Don't be those guys because judgment is coming to them. They're devouring the house of widows. They're spiritual oppressors. She gives an offering that's great. Her heart is great, but she shouldn't give that much. And she's giving to this den of robbers. This is wrong. They'll receive a greater condemnation. In fact, I'm coming for this temple. I'm going to destroy it and lay waste to it. Because this is not my temple. I don't recognize this house. It may have my name on it, but I don't live there. That's what Jesus is saying. Look what Jesus says to the church of Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Do the works you did at first. If not, 
I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Who's taking away the witness of the church? Jesus is, right? If you have your Bible, those, those letters are in red, right? Jesus is saying that to the church. I'm shutting you guys down. I'm taking your lampstand. That's the idea of witness, the brightness of light, right? The witness to the church. You're not doing things right. So I'm going to oppose you. And I'm taking it away. Man, that's serious. Well, just wait. It gets even more serious. Okay, look at the church at Pergamum. This is chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, repent. Stop what you're doing. You're out of line. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Like Jesus is taking names, right? Like, like, have you ever thought about that? That Jesus is saying to some churches, that's it. I'm at war against you. Like, I'm not only shutting your doors and taking the lampstand, I'm taking you out. You're not going to soil my reputation anymore. You were supposed to bear witness and you're not. You're abusing. You're out of line. You're not pure. You better repent. Because when I come, I'm taking names. Satan comes against you, he cannot prevail. The world comes against you, you've overcome the world. You're more than conquerors. They can't do anything to you. But I can do something to you. I could come after you. Wow. Let's just keep going because it's so fun. <laughs> to, the, to the church of Thyatira. Okay, verse 21. I think it's 21. I gave her time to repent. Oh, he's patient with us. I gave you time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw them into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. I'm taking your lampstand. I'm going to go at war with you. I'm throwing you on a sickbed, throwing you into tribulation. Man, don't mess with this guy. Like, he means business. Wow. It still, it, it, it still goes. Just in case you're like, oh, I need a breath of fresh air. Not yet. Okay, Revelation chapter 3, verse 3. This is the church at Sardis. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it. Repent. If you, will, if you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Sorry. Oh, I, I skipped. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Jesus is going to break in. Like how many felonies he's committed so far? He's committing war. He's stealing lampstands. He's coming like a thief. You're not even going to expect it. He throws you on a sickbed and into tribulation. Jesus opposes religious oppressors. He will vindicate the victims and he will judge the oppressors. Last one. Okay, if you want to be uplifted, read the church at Philadelphia. They had it right, but we're not going there today. Church at Laodicea, Right? Look at verse uh, 19. And those I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Verse 16. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Man. Jesus is real here. Now, how should we take these words? I think we should take him in the same fashion that Jesus delivered him to, or delivered to his disciples. He came to his disciples and said, guys, guys, come together. I need to warn you, don't be like those guys. Don't be like the scribes. Their hearts have soured. Right? The spiritual life in them is dead. 
They love luxury. They love applause. They love the veneration of the people. They're narcissists. They're consumed and they're victimizing widows. And look, there's a widow right there that they're victimizing. Don't be those guys. I don't believe, Sunrise, that we are the scribes. Like, I don't believe we're there. As your pastor, I would tell you, I don't believe, I don't believe we're there. But can we not get there? Let's just not get there. Like, I don't want Jesus to write Sunrise a letter that sounds like Revelation 2 or Revelation 3. I don't want to get there. Because that's the one I fear. Am I afraid of the devil? Yeah, okay, I am. But not anywhere in comparison to Jesus Christ. And what I want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Not, hey, Paul, what did you do? Why did you put up with this? Why did you compromise? That's it. Lampstand, gone. I'm making war against you, Paul, because you have not led this church well, but you've led it into disobedience. Let's not get there, right? Can we make that commitment? Let's not get there. I don't want to get there. I don't want to get there. Here's what, I, here's what I would call you and ask you and invite you and implore you to do. Please. Pray for the purity of this church. Let, let's, let's pray for it. Let's act pure. Because if we don't, he'll purify us through judgment. And I don't want that. I don't want that. So will you pray this week? Will you pray this week for the purity of this church? That God would not oppose us because we're out of line. That we would not fear the world. We would not fear Satan. Those are minuscule things. I don't want to get in the ring with Jesus. It's a knockout blow. And I don't want that. Will you pray for the purity of this church? We're going to have a time when we sing here in a moment. And we take communion. And I'm going to have the prayer team just on the first couple rows. Man, if you just want to come down during those songs and just pray for the purity of the church. Man, I would love that. I really would. I would truly love that. And I would love your continued prayers throughout this week. That's one action point you could take away from this message is I want to pray for the purity of our church. I want to pray for the purity of our church. Now, maybe you're here and and you've been hurt by a church. Or or you've been in leadership long enough and and it it happens. Uh, You caused some church hurt. I'll tell you right now, I've done both of those things. I've experienced church hurt myself, and I would tell you, of all the hurt I've experienced in my life, the church hurt is the hardest one to get over. It really is, man. I don't know why that wound cut so deep, but it did. And it's hard to get over that. But I got to tell you, on the other end, I've been in ministry long enough, and I know I've caused hurt. I could just think back of having to make some hard calls and hard decisions because of certain situation and... I had to make that call, and, and I don't think that call was wrong. It was the right thing, but the way it was handled was not right, and it hurt people, and that's on me because I was the leader in that moment. That was on me. So I've caused church hurt. And sadly, this is, this is the truth of, of the church. We're all broken, and we're all works in progress. Yes, we are new creations. He's forgiven us. He's doing some new work in us. But the Bible tells us very clearly, we are not perfect until the very end. And right now we're in the middle of our story. We're in the middle of our journey. And guess what? In the middle of the journey, it's still messy. We're still messy. There's still brokenness. Yes, we are forgiven, but we're forgiven sinners. And we still hurt people. We still make decisions that that cause pain. And that's sad and that stinks. And I hate that. I hate that that that's true. I hate that I've hurt people. And And I really don't like that I've been hurt myself. 
But if you've experienced that church hurt, here's what I hope you see. Is that even though the church is imperfect and it's going to fail you and it's going to hurt you, man, he is, he is perfect. And he will never fail you. And he'll never hurt you. And hear me, he'll make a promise to make all of that right at his time. He will vindicate and he will judge. But please see him. See him. Don't just look down. Look, man, I'll just say it right up front. You will get disappointed by me. You will experience hurt because of me. And I'm sorry. Like right up front, I'm sorry. And I hope when that moment comes that I see it, I confess it, and you forgive me. Because it, it's just a matter of time that I disappoint you. It's just a matter of time. You're like, Paul, it already happened. Good, so we got that out of the way. <laughs> but it's true. And I wish it weren't true. And it breaks my heart. But please look up. Because he will never fail you. Ever fail you. He's so perfect and so kind and so loving and so patient. And honestly, there are times that I wish he would just put an angel as our pastor. Right? Just perfect, angelic, booming voice. Let him do the work. Don't give it to us. Because we can mess it up sometimes. But that's not God's plan. That's not how God wanted it. If you experience hurt, man, I pray you just look up and you see the one who never fail you. And I'm sorry that the church has failed you. But he will never fail you. Church family, let's pray. Let's pray for the purity of the church. Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are to us in Jesus Christ. Oh, Holy Spirit, I pray that you keep us, man. That you purify us. Father, I love the church, man, big time. I love what it's meant to me. I love how it's ministered to me. And I really don't want to mess it up. And I know there are many here at Sunrise. We don't want to mess it up. We don't want to be one of those churches in Revelation 2, Revelation 3. We don't want to be those ones, man. We don't want to get a letter from you that's saying, hey, I'm going to make war against you. I'm going to spit you out. I'm going to take away your lampstand. I don't want that. So Holy Spirit, I pray you purify us. I pray you do a work in us that kills the narcissism, that takes away the pretense, the hypocrisy. Father, that you would help us see those impoverished in our community, those are in deep spiritual need. We would see them as not people that we can exploit, but people we can serve, people we can love. So Father, have your way here at sunrise. We We come to you just all broken saying, please, please let us not ruin the witness of your church with our impurity. We pray that you would purify us, purify us, Lord. And for those, Father, in the room that maybe they have got that hurt, maybe this, this whole message is just triggering things in them and they can feel it in their body and they're like, oh, I know what he's talking about. Father, I pray that you just help elevate their view. They could trust in you that you will vindicate, you will judge, you will handle the issue, but you are the one who will never fail them or forsake them or hurt them. Father, I pray that they, they would lift their vision beyond imperfection to the perfect Savior who is there for them. Oh, Father, would you do that? It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.